Uh, I do want to pray as we start in uh, on this uh, exploration. Um, Father, thank you uh, for, um, for this place. Thank you for these friends. Um, thank you that we can do this sort of thing. Uh, and um, we do pray that it would serve your purposes, that we would honor you in what we do here, um, that we would love you with our whole mind, and that this would be a time to grow in what that might mean, uh, that we would also be thinking in terms of loving our neighbors as ourselves, um, both neighbors in this room with us and um, beyond as well. Um, uh, thank you uh, for um, fellowship that we can have across centuries. Thank you personally for the uh, kind of role that Blaise Pascal has played, certainly in my own thinking. Uh, thank you for the way his voice continues to resonate and challenge and deepen um, our thinking in our lives today. Uh, I, I pray, Lord, that you would um, work past the, um, the limitations that I bring and that you would indeed reward these friends uh, according to your grace and wisdom. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Several years ago, we posted um, the following question on the wall out by the front door of Pascal's Coffee House. What's in a name? It read, why name a 21st century coffee house after a 17th century mathematician, scientist, theologian, philosopher, psychologist, inventor, and public servant? Well, there you have at least seven reasons, we answered. And then we continued by pointing to Pascal's varied interests and accomplishments and to his pensée, or his thoughts, as being one of the most thought-provoking books of the modern era. We also noted that, quote, while Enlightenment thinkers of the 18th century did not care for his questioning of modern rationalism, critics of the Enlightenment over the past century and a half brought Pascal back into the philosophical discourse of modernity, where he continues to listen and to speak, close quote. And I think we are reposting that, so it may even be out front this evening and um, up on the Pascal's website again. This evening, then, I would like to linger a little bit on this question, why Pascal? Why did I impose my will <laughs> in, a, in a way that I don't do real often and say that we're naming this coffee house for Blaise Pascal? Um, why specifically is he so important to me personally? <coughs> in short, my answer to this question comes down to Pascal's foresight or prescient understanding of the modern quest for truth by way of reason alone that was unfolding before his very eyes in the 17th century. Pascal was a contemporary of René Descartes, and Pascal saw at modernity's dawn what later critics would see in modernity's dusk. I find his ability to anticipate those critics to be remarkable, and I find his insights genuinely helpful in negotiating the late modern situation in which we find ourselves today. I also find his thoughtful exploration of a biblical understanding of human experience to be equally compelling and endlessly thought-provoking. Let me start by saying that I do not recall knowing much at all about Pascal prior to heading off to graduate school in a previous lifetime. Um, um, and I'm not sure how I started reading the Pensee, actually. I never took a class on Pascal. But what I do know is that I did not read Pascal 
until after I had read a great number of late modern and postmodern thinkers of the past century and a half. These would have included people like Nietzsche, Freud, Sartre, Camus, Heidegger, Derrida, Foucault, and Butler, McIntyre, Habermas, Steiner, Kolakowski, Westfall. I had also started reading the pragmatists, William James, John Dewey, Richard Rorty. This list of names will be more or less the various ones of you, but you can think of them generally as critics of the Enlightenment who unpacked the outcome, outcome of the modern quest for truth and struggled with how to negotiate that outcome, the de-divinized world into which that quest led. Some of these critics have embraced that outcome, some have resisted it, but most share the sense that what Alistair McIntyre called the Enlightenment Project and what John Dewey called the quest for certainty did not pan out as it was supposed to. <clears throat> With remarkable prescience, Pascal recognized the limits of the Enlightenment long before it occurred. The historian John Diggins notes that Pascal anticipated, quote, the hermeneutics of suspicion and the revolt against Cartesian rationalism that pragmatists and post-structuralists share. Diggins reminds us that, quote, the criticism of the Enlightenment leveled by the so-called postmodern critics had its predecessors in the religious writers who voiced their doubts at the dawn of the age of reason. It should be remembered, Diggins continues, that religious thinkers like Pascal pronounced modern philosophy dead before it came to life. Close quote. Diggins rightly concludes that though Pascal anticipated Nietzsche and his heirs by two and a half centuries and more, Pascal stands as a contemporary to Nietzsche and Freud and as a conversational partner with the pragmatists, the existentialists, the post-structuralists, and other late modern critics of the Enlightenment. Pascal's voice continues to resonate today. As Michel Legarne observes in his introduction to Pascal's complete works in French, Pascal is quelquefois difficile, toujours actuel, sometimes difficult, but always current. This evening, then, I want to identify four specific ways that Pascal anticipated these later critics who followed him centuries later. You can see the four points on the hand handout in front of you. First, in his critique of Descartes, of Descartes' quest for certainty, I would suggest that Pascal anticipated Martin Heidegger's critique of ontotheology, or of the modern tendency to turn God into a philosophical construct. Second, in his approach to method, Pascal anticipated the best of what the pragmatists have offered. Third, in reflecting on human experience, he anticipated Sigmund Freud's important insights into the human psyche. And fourth, in submitting to the voice of God in scripture, he anticipated Merrill Westfall's notion of heteronomy, the idea that reason does its best work when framed by revelation. Yes, this sounds like a lot to do this evening, and we will employ a couple of fancy words along the way, but I think we will be okay. I also want you to know that the first of my four points is, in fact, the longest, so please, when I'm done that point, don't multiply x times four in your head and fall into despair. Um, we are not going to be here all evening, but we are going to do some work. First, then, in his critique of René Descartes' quest for certainty, Pascal anticipated Martin Heidegger's critique of the ontotheological character of modernity. 
Descartes, you may recall, is the philosopher of the I think, therefore I am, which was his way of establishing what he took to be an unshakable, certain foundation to his philosophical system. And on that foundation, Descartes built an argument for the existence of God. Pascal, however, understood that while Descartes gave God a place in his system, Descartes' abstract God was not going to fare well. Eventually, it would become clear that such a God is neither certain or necessary, and he would simply disappear. Pascal saw this from the start and went ahead and identified Descartes' system as godless. Quote, I cannot forgive Descartes, he wrote. In his whole philosophy, Descartes would like to do without God, but he could not help allowing him a flick of the fingers to set the world in motion. After that, he had no more use for God, close quote. Pascal, in other words, already saw Descartes' philosophical theism as a version of deism, and he saw deism as little more than atheism. Pascal would not have been surprised to hear Nietzsche announce two and a half centuries later that God was dead. Pascal would only have wondered why it took two and a half centuries for this outcome to become as obvious to others as it had been to Pascal in the 17th century. Pascal saw Descartes' ultimately godless rationalist deism as quite distinct, though, from Christianity's revealed theism. So he worked hard to distinguish what he called the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob from the God of philosophers and scholars. Quoting Pascal, deism, almost as remote from the Christian religion as atheism, it's complete opposite. Let them conclude what they like against deism, their conclusion will not apply to Christianity, close quote. In Pascal's view, the fate of the God of the philosophers need have no implications for the God who reveals himself in scripture. In arguing this way, Pascal anticipates Martin Heidegger's 20th century critique of modern ontotheology. Yes, the term ontotheology sounds intimidating, but you can think of it as Heidegger's way of talking about the same tendency that Pascal saw in Descartes, the tendency to turn God into a philosophical necessity. It is the choice to turn God into an instrument that we then utilize in order to place all of being under the rule of human reason. In the end, however, it is a way of thinking about God that leads inevitably to the death of God. The German philosopher Heidegger, who wrote in the early to mid 20th century, is rather rough going, so I'm always glad to get help, and in this case specifically from Merrill Westfall, philosopher emeritus at Fordham University. As Westfall notes, Heidegger recognized that the god of Western philosophy is allowed to have a place only at the command of the philosophers. Quote, the deity can come into philosophy only insofar as philosophy of its own accord and by its own nature requires and determines that and how the deity enters into it. Close quote. According to the ontotheologic of modernity, quote, God is at the beck and call of human understanding, a means to its end of making the whole of being intelligible 
in keeping with the principle of reason." Close quote. Like Pascal, both Heidegger and Westfall recognize that in this modern project, the individual places himself at the center of being and then gives God a place in his world. To use Heidegger's language, by framing God in my world, rather than seeing myself framed within God's world, I cease to be a shepherd of being and become instead the tyrant of being. When we give God his place in our philosophically determined world, we become, quote, that which places everything in relation to itself, close quote. Ontotheology wants to posit a God in order to, quote, have the world at our cognitive disposal. God becomes a technique for explaining, an instrument by which humanity seeks to master reality. In other words, we view God as a necessary element in our system, but we also make him answerable to our conception of what counts as reasonable. As Westfall notes, this ontotheological project leaves us with a God that is not worth bothering over. It is a God that is a philosophical concept or factotum, not a being worthy of worship. Pascal, Heidegger, and Westfall all understand that once Descartes' ontotheological project settles in, it creates a God that is unable to survive the logic of the system that created it in the first place. The result is a God whose death we need not mourn. Like Pascal, Westfall and Heidegger were able to distinguish the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the God of the philosophers, and they argued that the God of Scripture need not suffer the fate of the ontotheological creations of modern philosophy. Quote, to lump all religion together under the heading of ontotheology and then declare all religion dead with the death of the god of ontotheology is unwarranted, Westfall argues. As Pascal knew, the god of scripture need not die with the god of the philosophers. Westfall agrees and links Heidegger's late modern critique to Pascal's prescient insight. When people lump all religion together, Westfall writes, and see it as defeated through the critique of ontotheology, the Pascalian character of Heidegger's critique is overlooked. Pascal, Heidegger, and Westfall agree. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can be distinguished from the God of the philosophers and ought to be able to survive the demise of philosophy's ontotheological construct. By distinguishing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the God of the philosophers, Pascal and Heidegger and Westfall opened the door to reconsider the deeper revealed theisms that the modern quest drove to the margins. Having done so, however, Pascal has no interest in simply taking a leap of faith to the God who reveals himself in scripture. Pascal recognized that the reason why Descartes' system ended in atheism lay in a method that had its conclusions hidden in its premises. Pascal, therefore, wanted to offer a more reasonable and fair approach to inquiry and argument. And in doing so, I would submit, Pascal anticipated the best of what the pragmatists have had to offer 
two and a half centuries later. Neither Pascal nor I am a pragmatist, but I do find the parallels striking. Like Pascal, William James and his heirs rejected the quest for certainty. They also encouraged us to root our inquiries and arguments in experience rather than in abstract ethereal realms. Pascal did the same. And I see in this then a second important way that Pascal anticipated late modern thinkers. Like the pragmatists, Pascal avoided abstract questions, operated in the realm of lived experience, and allowed experience to generate questions worth bothering over. Again, like the pragmatists, he then tried on alternative answers to those questions and alternative ways of understanding experience, and then he weighed those answers and understandings against each other on the basis of the best reasons available. By letting go of the quest for certainty, he avoided the downward spiral of doubt into which that quest leaves, leads while still relying on reason and reasons. Pascal understood that when we take this approach, we might not be able to argue that our conclusions are necessarily so, but they might still be true and we might hold them for good reasons. By taking this more reasonable approach, we can get free from the reductionistic prejudices that are hidden in the premises of the quest for certainty, and we can then reconsider the deeper theistic ways of thinking that were unfairly and unreasonably driven to the margins by the modern quest for truth. In this more open space, then, Pascal reflects on shared human experience and once again anticipates several late modern thinkers, this time including Sigmund Freud. And I'll just point out, see how quickly there we moved from point one to point two, and we're now on point three. Um, both Freud and Pascal were fascinated by the contradictory nature of human experience. What Freud described as a struggle between eros and death, or between the instinct of life and the instinct of destruction, Pascal described as a contradiction between greatness, grandeur, and wretchedness, misère. Both thinkers were keen students of human behavior and psychology, and both saw internal conflict or contradiction as one of the great puzzles of human experience. <coughs> In exploring this contradiction, Freud asks, what do people demand of life? And, his and he responds by saying, the answer to this can hardly be in doubt. They strive after happiness. They want to become happy and to remain so. But Freud sets this universal pleasure principle in opposition to the equally universal reality principle. The principle of the pursuit of pleasure, he writes, is at loggerheads with the whole world. The program of becoming happy, which the pleasure principle imposes on us, cannot be fulfilled. Yet we must not, indeed we cannot, give up our efforts to bring it nearer to fulfillment by some means or other. One way or another, Freud argues, we will pursue our happiness, but we will also find ourselves frustrated and discontented in that pursuit. We will find ourselves not simply unhappy, but plagued by a malaise or unbehagen that weighs heavily on modern civilization. 250 years earlier, Pascal made similar observations. Quote, all men seek happiness, writes Pascal. 
there are no exceptions. However different the means they may employ, they all strive towards this goal. Yet, Pascal continues, all men complain. Caught in this conundrum and plagued by boredom, people seek diversion, Pascal talk says, and hoping to find ways to avoid, in, in order to try to find ways to avoid the restless unhappiness to which their quest for happiness so often leads. The pleasure principle, the reality principle, the problems of boredom and discontent all appear in Pascal long before they appear in Freud. While Freud did not reference Pascal in ways that several other late modern thinkers have, the two make fascinating conversational partners. Harold Bloom has suggested that, quote, a Christian polemicist in our time ought to find his true antagonist in Freud, but nearly all do not, close quote. Curiously, Pascal did, although he anticipated Freud by two and a half centuries. As Pascal begins to try on alternative hypotheses for how best to understand the shared human experiences of greatness and wretchedness, he looks first to the philosophers, but concludes that the philosophers disappoint us. Either they recognize our greatness and tempt us to think of ourselves as gods, or they grab a hold of the wretchedness, wretchedness as being central to who we are and give us over to our corrupted passions. In the jargon of the 17th century, they give us over to concupiscence. In the language of the 21st century, they declare us to be free and yet leave us captive to our desires and passions. Finding the philosophers to have fallen short and having no interest in abstract theisms, Pascal tries on the narrative of the creation and fall from the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. In this narrative, he finds that great principle of greatness and great principle of wretchedness for which he is seeking. The biblical te text teaches us that because we bear the image of God, there is a greatness and glory in each one of us that is to be celebrated and that can never be eradicated. Because we tend to resist God, however, the greatness and the glory have become troubled the image has become corrupted. As a result, although the glory of the divine image endures in each of us, it never finds full, uncorrupted expression. By the same token, although the image is marred, it never goes away. Quote, observe all the impulses of greatness and of glory which the experience of so many miseries cannot stifle, Pascal writes. The greatness of the image of the creator remains in every one of us. Both the glory and the brokenness are common to us all, and Pascal maintains that once we see this contradiction as being between the wonder and greatness of the image of God and the equally constant wretchedness of our corruption and blindness, we will see it everywhere. This understanding of experience, Pascal argues, also helps us understand and make some sense of the sense of loss and longing that is so basic to our experience. The Genesis narrative, Pascal argues, suggests not only that we are made in God's image, but that we are also made for him. Here too, however, we encounter the contradiction between what we are made for and how we choose to live. Because we are made for God, we seek after him. Because of the corruption that afflicts us, however, we tend to turn away 
from the one who is both the source and object of our longings. Instead of finding him, we put idols in his place. Having retained the passions, but having lost sight of their true object, we seek in objects other than God what can be found only in him. We try in vain to fill the void, quote, seeking in things that are not there the help we cannot find in those that are. God alone is man's true good, Pascal concludes, and since man abandoned him, it is a strange fact that nothing in nature has been found to take his place. In making this argument, it is important to note that Pascal relies on scripture. He is not arguing for an abstract theism. He is arguing for a specific understanding given to us through a specific source. While he sees this understanding as compelling in its own right, he also argues and urges us to submit to the source from which we get this understanding. He urges his readers to listen to the voice of God, to allow revelation to frame reason. In making this argument, then, finally what I want to suggest is that he anticipates Merrill Westfall's views on the limits of reason and on the need for reason to be framed by something larger than itself. Westfall argues, and he is one of many who make this kind of argument, that there is no such thing as pure reason. Uh, come to Scott Hawley's presentation on classification and you'll get a good taste of <laughs> what, what we're talking about there. But there is no such thing as pure reason. Whether acknowledged or not, reason is always framed by something other than itself, by what Westfall, Westfall calls a heteronomos, a second law. Sometimes these second laws are hidden from us, but Westfall encourages us to reflect on what that second law might be and what might be a best second law to frame reason. When we do, he argues, the idea of revelation framing reason becomes a compelling possibility. Pascal agrees and urges us to see the word of God and scripture as being a right and reasonable way for us to frame our ability to think. The fact that Pascal occasionally allows God to speak for himself in the pensée is no mere stylistic or literary device. To the contrary, it reveals a central line in Pascal's argument. Pascal does not dabble in abstract theism. Instead, he listens specifically to the voice of the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, he considers the God who has revealed himself in history and finally, in quote, the uncreated and incarnate truth. Accordingly, while reflecting on the sovereign good, Pascal suggests that we, quote, see what the wisdom of God will do. Pascal then allows God to speak for himself, quote, do not expect either truth or consolation from men, God says. And then God continues to speak, it is I who have made you, and I alone can teach you what you are. It is in vain that you seek within yourselves the cure for your miseries. All your intelligence can only bring you to realize that it is not within yourselves that you will find either truth or good. The philosophers have failed you, God asserts, because, quote, they do not know what your true good is, 
nor what your true state is. How could they provide cures for ills which they did not even know? Your chief maladies, the voice of God continues, are the pride that withdraws you from God and the concupiscence, or passions out of control, that bind you to the earth. All that the philosophers have done, God says, is keep at least one of these maladies going. Close quote. Beware their limited perspectives, God warns. There is a depth to human reality that the philosophers do not know. God then concludes, only I can make you understand what you are. In another pensée, Pascal again urges his readers to listen to God. This time, it's Pascal's voice that points us to the voice of God. Quote, know then, proud man, what a paradox, paradox you are to yourself. Be humble, impotent reason. Be silent, feeble nature. Learn that man infinitely transcends man. Hear from your master your true condition, which is unknown to you. Listen to God." Close quote. There are two excesses, Pascal warns, to exclude reason, to admit nothing but reason. Therefore, quote, it is not through the proud activity of our reason, but through its simple submission that we can really know ourselves. Continuing to quote, man transcends man, Pascal observes, and again, man infinitely transcends man. In other words, we are deeper than we know ourselves to be, and we live in a culture that is not able to take us to that depth. It is the voice then of the transcendent creator that can reveal us to ourselves in our transcendence most fully. So then, listen to God. Having urged us to listen to God, however, Pascal assures us that God has no interest in asking us to take a leap of faith in his direction. God wants us to come to faith for good reasons. He wants us to see the reasonableness of seeing ourselves as he does, as embodying the greatness of the image of our creator while also revealing a brokenness that comes with refusing to give God his due place. Quote, I do not demand of you blind faith, God assures us. I do not mean you to believe me submissively and without reason. But God also wants us to recognize the reasonable limits of our reason and to recognize the, the reasonableness of submitting to his voice. So he adds, quote, nor do I claim to account to you for everything. This too, Pascal argues, is reasonable. Indeed, it would be unreasonable to expect finite and fallible beings such as we to attain to the depths of the knowledge of God. This was Eve's sad misstep in the garden. She failed to recognize both the rightness and reasonableness of allowing God's voice to frame human reason rather than the other way round. When Pascal argues for a Christian understanding of human experience, then he argues first that the understanding of human experience that he finds in the pages of scripture is intellectually compelling. He does not appeal to religious authority to make this argument, but to reason. Quote, there are two ways of persuading men of the truths of our religion, he writes, one by the power of reason, the other by the authority of the speaker. We do not use the latter, but the former. 
We do not say you must believe it because scripture which says it is divine, but we say that it must believed, be believed for such and such a reason." Close quote. Pascal also argues, however, that the intellectually compelling nature of this biblical understanding of experience should incline us in turn to trust the source from which we gain this insight, especially when that source presents itself as the voice of the Creator. Pascal argues then that submission and use of reason is what makes true Christianity. Submission and use of reason. Notice the order. Submission and use is what makes true Christianity. He says, one must know when it is right to doubt, to affirm, to submit. Anyone who does otherwise does not understand the force of reason. Some men run counter to these three principles, either affirming that everything can be proved because they know nothing about proof, or doubting everything because they do not know when to submit, or always submitting because they do not know when judgment is called for. Pascal lives consciously in the tension that this thought describes, a tension in which there are no easy answers. There are times to doubt, times to affirm, and times to submit, and in each case, judgment is called for. Limited and fallible as our reasoning may be, we are always in the position of having to think about what is reasonable to believe and when to affirm, when to doubt, and when to submit. Reason has to consider each in turn, but it should do so remembering that, quote, reason rightly submits when it ought to submit, close quote. In fact, each of us frequently submits to something more reliable than our own ability to think. We submit to physicians, teachers, and mechanics. We submit to scientific communities and to civil authorities. And then sometimes we choose not to. We also often settle for doubt. On other occasions, we choose to affirm on no other basis than our own ability to think. But beware of relying exclusively on proof or allowing doubt to have the final word or simply <coughs> submitting blindly. As Pascal points out, some people stumble in these matters, quote, either affirming that everything can be proved because they know nothing about proof or doubting everything because they do not know when to submit or always submitting because they do not know when judgment is called for. There is no simple, easy way forward. No matter what course we choose, we are right to exercise reason and to think as carefully as we can. But I do hope that if we learn nothing else from Pascal this evening, we learned to let go of that quest for certainty and to cast off the doubt into which it leads, and that we follow Pascal's more reasonable, fair-minded approach, that we reflect on experience, that we allow it to generate questions worth puzzling over, like the questions that he and Freud share, and then that we consider alternative understandings of experience and weigh them against each other on the basis of the best reasons available to us. The burden of doubt weighs heavily on us all, 
It is our modern inheritance, sadly. <coughs> but we need not allow that burden or the failed quest for certainty that creates that burden to frame our thinking any longer. We can think with Pascal, and in doing so, we may find not only that his method is liberating, but also that his conclusions are compelling. That the best way to understand our contradictory self is in terms of an image of God that may be corrupted but is always enduring. And we may join him as well then in listening carefully to the voice of the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, Isaac, God of Jacob, the God of the uncreated and incarnate truth. And I will pause there. Uh, I'll actually stop there. But um, I do invite questions, conversation, discussion here. Some of you have heard me talk about these kinds of things more than once over the years. And so it's sort of familiar. Some of you are hearing this for the very first time. And um, as I say, I, I, I have been asking you to do a little bit of work. I hope it's held together well enough. But don't hesitate to ask a question of any sort. I've put a few relevant names up here and tried to give you a little uh, handles to hang on to. Um, but but what, what questions do you have? Thanks. I don't know the definition of pragmatism, so I admit there's ignorance here. But why do you not consider yourself a pragmatist? You, you spoke of them affirmatively and then made that remark without yeah. explanation. Um, what is pragmatism? Uh, yeah, and I, I knew it. This is just going to completely. <laughs> At any rate, um, I, I think I would associate pragmatism as much as anything with that notion of method that I said Pascal and James and Dewey and Rorty share. Um, and, and it is most centrally trying to move away from this modern <coughs> rationalist quest for certainty and, and seeing that quest as, as not helpful. The, the phrase quest for certainty is in Dewey's writing specifically, um, and uh, so, so letting go of that and, and sort of saying, let's start with experience, let it generate the questions, and try on alternative ways of understanding the experience and answering the questions and solving puzzles that present themselves to us and that seem worth bothering with. Now, strictly put, um, James would say um, that the kind of ideas then, the kind of reasons we're looking for for why we would choose one answer over another have, have to do with the consequences of holding that belief. Um, that beliefs should be action-guiding beliefs. Um, and, and in that sense, the pragmatists are doing something a little bit more specific than what I'm seeing in Pascal, but I would still say the similarities are pretty striking. Um, and then the other, the other reason why I don't say I'm a pragmatist or make Pascal out to be one is that any of these terms come with so much baggage and so much um, uh, connotation, so many connotations, depending on what you're, where you've come from on them, um, that, I'm, that I'm always going to be guarded about being a, identified personally um, in some particular way, as no matter how much I may want to identify with existentialists or pragmatists or others. Um, there's more that could be said about pragmatism. Um, uh, the only other phrase that I would say is, is a pretty central one is the idea of the pragmatist notion of truth is that the true is that which is good by way of belief. 
um, which, is a, which is a notion that I encourage you to think about. When you first hear it, you probably won't like it. The more you think about it, the more you might find it actually very interesting. But I won't go down that rabbit trail, except just to say that's another really central piece of, of pragmatism. Yeah, no. Is C.S. Lewis mere Christianity? Do you think he's kind of doing that, starting by way of human experience? Mm -hmm. and yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do. And, and so I think I would see Lewis as in this, in what becomes, I think, a sort of classical apologetics tradition, um, although I'm never sure how to use those terms. Um, but yeah, in Lewis's um, mere Christianity, the theological virtues, the chapters on the theological virtues, and then the weight of glory essay, I think Lewis is starting with aspects of human experience that particularly capture his attention and they have particularly to do with the notion of longing um, and how we should understand our longings, what they tell us about ourselves. And I think he then sort of, in effect, tries on alternative ways of, of thinking about ourselves and finds this biblical anthropology that's rooted in a biblical theology that's right there in Genesis 1 and 2 um, to be a compelling understanding. So particularly the part where um, I talk of just in passing about Pascal describing the sense of loss and longing, um, that resonates with Lewis. When Pascal develops that, what he, what he does after talking about the contradictions and ways they, that the contradiction shows up in so many different ways, he then talks about the nature of our discontent is that of someone who is born to be king, but never becomes king. That that, that 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 person who is exiled, but was born for that, not in the way that we might aspire to be president of our country, but they, they, were, they were born for it. Um, and it never came to them. He says that's the, that's the sense of longing that he thinks each of us has when we um, really reflect on it. Um, and that it's the, it's the kind of longing that a person who is blind would have for seeing, not the kind of longing you or I might have for wishing we had a third eye on the back of our head. It's, it's a different sort of longing. In other words, there's something you're fundamentally made for that's eluding you. And, and Lewis and following Pascal uh, wanna, wanna, wanna enthrall us with that idea. And, and draw it out, say, I think it's there in you. Isn't it there in you? Um, yeah, yeah, Brent. So in, in this sort of process of, um, if you call it a process of affirming, submitting, uh, or the other one, doubting, right, uh, and using our judgment, does, does Pascal ascribe any specific role for community in that? For community? Right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, and I, in, in the way I said it, I tried to be very careful to say when you're, when you're trying to evaluate sort of competing understandings or answers um, for the best reasons available to us, and the us was a very deliberate choice, and frankly, some of our conversations fed into it, that, that community, that, that the process of, of thinking needs to be a community process. Uh, many of us are familiar with Alan Jacobs' book on how to think, and, and his big point in that is, please don't think for yourself, uh, meaning don't think all by yourself. Uh, thinking needs to be a, a community kind of an activity, 
um, in which you do um, sit down, particularly with people with whom you would have disagreements, and, and you're trying to find um, for the best reasons you too can figure out and, and, and the community can figure out um, what, what, is, what, is the, what are the more compelling answers and understandings here. Yeah, Michael. question what he's unpacking at many points is, is just the biblical narrative and there are sections of the poem say where he is exploring um, the scriptures in a way that um, that it's clear we're talking about what would have been the, the Roman Catholic canon um, in the 17th century that that's the that's what's being appealed to um, and, and the voice of God finds expression in the written word of scripture and in the uncreated and incarnate truth. So, so there are specific pensées, and I, I would have loved to have added them at the end, that focus in on Christ um, as the one in whom we most fully know both God and ourselves. Um, God in the fullest um, expression of who he is and ourselves in our contradictory nature that um, that uh, there's no way the second person of the Trinity becomes the uncreated incarnate truth um, if there isn't something terribly terribly wrong and, and there, there isn't a desperate need that only that kind of solution can solve the problem and by the same token, the second person of the Trinity doesn't become the uncreated incarnate truth if there isn't something um, just absolutely glorious and wonderful in God's sight that he will not let go of. And so it, it affirms both the grandeur and the wretchedness in the most profound ways. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's Pascal and Augustine and the Apostle Paul, uh, yeah, all wrapped up together. But, but that's the lineage Pascal is in, and, and there are these wonderful moments when that kind of thing uh, emerges. Yeah. I was wondering, do you, do you think all these individuals would, like, say that they are not in tune or embrace the human experience? I just feel like when I heard like Pascal, like the guy was really pointing to experience that we should like pay attention, learn to be honest with ourselves, like how we're going through life. But would you say like these other individuals are not necessarily focused on that? Like they would they would own that uh, position? Um, no, actually, I mean that list that I sort of started with. Uh, many of them. There would be a real resonance here. Um, um, the, uh, I mean, you start with Nietzsche. Nietzsche loved Pascal, um, and um, 
talked about how Pascal's blood flowed in his veins. Um, the dialogue between Nietzsche and Pascal is fascinating. Um, Pascal obviously he doesn't get to talk back to Nietzsche, but in effect he does. Um, but Nietzsche's engagement with Pascal is quite extensive. And, and there is a, obviously at the end of the day a tremendous deep disagreement. Um, but there is such an appreciation for the kind of um, thinking that Nietzsche is encountering in, in Pascal. Um, you know, I, I mentioned Freud. Freud didn't talk about Pascal, but the conversation is very much there. They are reflecting on, the, on human nature, on what sort of beings are we. And the parallels there are just remarkable. And I just gave you a, a glimpse, but they go on. Um, the one that I didn't do, it was in here, but I knew I was already asking you way too much. So I dropped Sartre out. But my word, that's, that's another one that's just so fascinating. Um, this, people who study this, uh, there are people who identify <coughs> Pascal as an existentialist. No, we can't call him an existentialist in the same way we can't call him a pragmatist. But my word, does his voice and his ways of engaging um, the encounter with being in, a, in a, an expanding universe just resonate with, with Sartre and, and Camus and the existentialists of the mid-20th century. Um, and, and those would be people who, who are atheists um, in their thinking. But then you get to the others. And, and what I did decide to do in the reading group, um, my comment, I think it's just Westfall, it's going to be in our reading group this semester. Um, because what I thought I'd do is go ahead and include some of these tonight, and then the reading group we will pick up on Westfall, Kolakowski, and I think I've got O'Connor in there, don't I? Flannery O'Connor. Um, uh, Kolakowski is, is wonderful. I, I, honestly, if you can get on this reading group, do it. Um, I'm really, really looking forward to it. We will do a little bit of Pascal, and then we'll do these, these people who are kind of his successors and thinking with him. Um, Kolakowski... I was first introduced to back in the day when I used to try to find a job um, as someone getting a PhD, you know, that feudal quest, talk about feudal quests. At any rate, um, I was, at, I was at, um, in Chicago at one of the conventions, I think it was the philosophy convention, even though I'm not a philosopher, um, and uh, I was walking past the University of Chicago book table. In those days, this, um, wow, this is pre-cell phones and all that kind of thing. So there were actual books on tables and you walk through and it was just this wonderful, wonderful thing of books and books and books. And so I'm walking through and the University of Chicago table has a book prop, propped up and the title of the book is God Owes Us Nothing. And I thought, wow, wow, uh, that's kind of interesting. And I picked it up and it was Leszek Kolakowski. And from that point on, his voice has just resonated. And God Owes Us Nothing is a 200-page essay by Kolakowski on Pascal. Um, so it, it just, th these, and so yeah, these thinkers, um, people like Kolakowski, Merrill Westfall has been one of my heroes literally for decades uh, from when I first encountered him, sort of continental thinker, um, and just wonderful. Uh, I mean, honestly, whether you're in the reading group or not, uh, if you can read any of Merrill Westfall or Leszek Kolakowski, and then what do I need to say about Flannery O'Connor? I mean, this, these are the people who are, who are in, in the succession to, to Pascal, and, and it's a wonderfully rich, wonderfully rich 
<coughs> lineage there. Uh, any any other questions? Yeah. You talk. You said something about uh, Descartes' conclusion uh, being hidden, hidden, hidden in his premises. Could you mm. elaborate a little on that? Yeah, um, it's a good question. Um, I'd encourage you, uh, if you want to, if you want to get a sense for Descartes, and I, I couldn't go into this tonight, but his, um, both in his meditations and his discourse on the right use of reason in the sciences, um, he makes this argument in which he's trying to find um, a sort of an absolute certain foundation for philosophy, and and it is the I think therefore I am line. Um, what he does then on the basis of that, which he, which he considers to be indisputable as a foundation, is that he builds on that. And the way he builds on it is, the first step is um, that the I think therefore I am necessarily confirms the existence of the immaterial thinking self, of the soul, of um, the immaterial self. It's, it's not going to prove yet the material self in his argument, but there's a necessary existence of the thinking self. So that's the, that's the first lever, layer on the foundation. Um, the next layer is um, that because I can understand myself um, to be imperfect, um, perfection must necessarily exist and for it to be perfection, it must actually exist. And that actually existing perfect being, we call God. And so God becomes the next necessary element in the system. On top of that, he also then makes an argument for um, clear and distinct ideas that have the same character as the ones that he has just proven, which is an interesting step. Um, and then on the top, it's science. Um, and science becomes the the, the pinnacle of the pyramid. Um, it doesn't take long for um, the logic of that to start to make the whole thing crumble. Um, if the argument is put in terms of necessity, and I think necessity is probably the key word here more than certainty, he's trying to find out what is necessarily so. And the argument is that God is necessarily so. Well, he's not. And, and, and so over time, it, it just becomes apparent. And, and, and also another layer in there is that not only do we establish this being called God as being necessary being, we can also extrapolate by the same necessary logic from our imperfections to what must be perfect in that perfect being. So my knowledge is limited, therefore his knowledge is omniscient. My power is limited, therefore he is omnipotent. I am finite, therefore he is infinite. And so all of that happens. Well, it doesn't take long for people to be able to say, well, no, there, there's no necessity in, in, in there being a being who is omnipotent or all-knowing in the universe. And, and if your argument is going to be by way of necessity, then the argument is going to just gradually dissolve. And, and historically, I would say that's what happened just in terms of the general pattern. And I think Pascal is right to call Descartes on it right from the beginning. And one of his other lines, 
I wish there were more extended places in Pascal's writing where he talks about Descartes, and they did have a personal meeting that we, of course, wish we had a note taker on, and we don't. But um, one of his simple lines is Descartes, period, neither useful nor certain. <laughs> um, and, and, and so it's that, it's that, no, the claim to certainty is not certain. And he has another argument where relative to um, the search for foundations for science, again, Pascal argues, no, that quest for foundations is a futile quest. It dissolves under its own weight. And, and so the, that, that, it's that rationalistic kind of scheme. And I think Dewey's comment, uh, Dewey's phrase, the quest for certainty, is a good way to capture it. Um, and, and, and the other way I would capture it is the quest for necessary truths that in the end of the day um, dissolves under its own weight and says at the end of the day there are no necessary truths. And I, and I do think that has played out in our modern story. I see the quest for truth and necessity all around me today. And you very nicely said the quest for certainty or necessity is not bringing us where we need to be. But it should replace by the quest for what? The best understanding? Yeah. In response to specific questions that we have. Yeah. And, and I do think you know, yeah, there are ways of going back uh, into some of these traditional proofs for God and all and, and reappropriating them. But, but, they, but I think it's really important to reframe them in, in the terms that I'm trying to propose tonight that I think Pascal and the pragmatists share. This is not a small thing. Um, and, and, I, and I guess... I really am concerned. I mean, for all of you in this room and your friends and family members, and all, we are part of a cultural story that leads inexorably to doubt. Um, and I would say not for good reasons, but because it is the logic of this modern quest that takes you there. That's where it comes out, is in doubt. Um, and, I'm, and I'm concerned about that. Um, so, and, and I think that outcome, we can't just sort of stay with the quest and try to argue something differently. I think we've got to go back to the beginnings of the quest and say, the choice between Pascal and Descartes in the 17th century is huge. And, and the extent to which that Cartesian model dominated and has dominated for four centuries has real implications. Um, and you just think of um, friends, and, and it may be words you've used yourselves, I, um, particularly young people who grow up in the Christian faith, one of the things they will end up saying, and that I hear often around here is, it, it's not necessary to believe in God. And, and, and it's not necessary for God to exist. And I go, right, okay. I mean, in some philosophical sense, right, it's not necessary. But are there good reasons for thinking there is God? Where, where do the good reasons lie? And, and even in Rorty, who is the sort of pinnacle of the pragmatist thing, Rorty, Rorty is an atheist at the end of the day, and, and in his own writing, part of his argument is, it is not necessary for truth and beauty ever and justice to ever come down deep in the nature of things. 
it is not necessary for there to be a God, and therefore I disbelieve. And I go, wait a minute, Rorty. You, you, you're a pragmatist. You have said what we're going to do is move away from that kind of thinking and not talk about what's necessary or not necessary to believe. We're going to talk about what is more or less compelling to believe. And, and I think that's an important move to make. Because if you accept the necessity framework, you will end up with the least possible account that you can live with. It is reductionistic by its logic, okay? It reduces things to the least that you need to believe in order to get on with life. As it turns out, and I would argue because the image of God is in us, and I get, you know, I, I said, God, I don't know why you do this this way, but, but it's like it's because God's image is in us that we are able to live in all the inconsistent ways we are. To, to say the things that we say with regard to disbelieving, and still, yeah, quite, quite easily getting on with our lives. So when I have conversations with <coughs> students here who've, who've discovered the, the great freedom of atheism, um, and they say, I've realized I, I, I stopped believing in God and I'm doing fine. I go, yeah, let's think about that. How shall we understand that experience? That's a very interesting experience. How shall we understand that? So I, I always keep, just keep wanting to go that. It's, it's much more the how questions than it is the why questions. How shall we understand this? How shall we make sense of X, Y, or Z? Is sort of the way I want to go. Um, time to quit, but uh, glad to have the conversations continue. Um, as always, I just uh, invite you, please, where you have questions or comments, um, concerns, if at any point, you know, I come across saying something in a way that sounds glib or something, um, please forgive me, but, but um, also talk to me. Um, I, I am very eager to have the conversations, and, and this is an us kind of uh, project, so thank you. And uh, I am looking forward to the uh, next two that Mike said we'll do late in the semester, but uh, one will be a little piece from the Gospels class that we've done over the years, and the other one a little piece from the Ecclesiastes and Wisdom Literature class. And on those, I'm actually looking forward, I think, to being more in a little bit of a teacher mode than a lecture mode, um, but uh, I'm already looking forward to those as well, and thanks. If you can get on any of these reading groups starting tomorrow morning, bright and early, um, please do it. You won't be sorry you did. And thanks again. Good night.